This episode of the Anti-Heroes Podcast with Zach Blair is presented by Thunder Road Guitars. Thunder Road Guitars is the Pacific Northwest's best source for premium new, used, and vintage guitars, amplifiers, and pedals. Online or in their Seattle and Portland shops, you'll find fantastic customer service and a terrific vibe. I personally always make a stop at Thunder Road Guitars in Seattle. Uh, they're a great bunch of guys, and it's just not a complete Seattle trip unless I go and say hi and see what uh, wonderful stuff they have. These are real people offering real service, folks. Uh, use code ANTIHEROES10 to get 10% off at www.thunderroadguitars.com and tell them I sent you. Hey guys, this is Zach from the Anti-Heroes Podcast, and I want to welcome our newest sponsor to the show, DistroKid. DistroKid helps musicians get their music on all the major streaming platforms, and artists keep 100% of their royalties. Can you believe that? Anti-Heroes listeners get 30% off at distrokid.com slash VIP slash anti-heroes. Again, that's distrokid.com slash VIP slash anti-heroes. Thank you so much and support all the folks at DistroKid because they're they're doing amazing work and we couldn't be happier to have them on board. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. We couldn't be luckier to have these guys on board with us. I personally use these products and you should too. Find out more about them at jimdunlop.com. Let's get on to the podcast. Folks, and welcome once again to the Anti-Heroes Podcast with your host, Zach Blair. I am Zach Blair. Hi there. How you doing? I'm home in Texas, and uh, the, the Rise Against Band will be doing stuff soon and playing some shows and doing some stuff, so check that out, and hopefully I'll see your lovely faces and come and talk to me about the Anti-Heroes. Uh, let's, let's commiserate. Today, folks, I am talking to John Baisley from just the amazing band, Barrenness. I know I say amazing about all my uh, guests, but this guy really, really is. And I don't know how the episodes will roll out, but I also talked to Gina from Barrenness. Uh, you know, I, I could have talked to them both together on one episode, but I wanted to give them each their own episodes because, man, what interesting players, what interesting musicians, what interesting people. And I'm so happy and thankful that I got a chance to talk to both of them. Uh, you'll hear today, you know, John, we talk about his art background. We talk about, you know, his motivations, his gear choices, which are very interesting for what you would call a heavy band. I, I'm reticent to call them a metal band. I don't think they are just a metal band. They're able to really accentuate and utilize their varied influences in such a way that it comes off as heavy, but not just metal there's metal in there you, you you should just explore baroness if you're not are currently a fan please listen to this interview please go down the baroness rabbit hole i know i did so i'm gonna shut up and i'm gonna let you do that i'm gonna let you uh listen to this wonderful player and musician and get into my interview here with john basley How you doing, man? I'm, I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm good. So this is, I don't know how these will roll out, but I have talked to Gina. So this is like my Baroness uh, tribute. And you guys have a new record. It's called Stone. And hopefully, I think it'll be out by the time this airs. So uh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. We're really fucking psyched. <laughs> That's awesome. And congratulations on like producing it yourself, releasing it yourself, like the whole thing, it's oh, it's in-house. And I just think that's so awesome that we have that ability to do that nowadays and, and quite effectively. Yeah, it's it's been an awesome journey getting to this point. It always was our intention from a long time ago. And it seemed, uh, you know, it seemed through the early aughts and into the teens, like potentially doing the label and just kind of trying to operate a little bit more independently, a little bit more on a DIY scale was going to be impossible 
just due to the musical climate of the times. Sure. But, you know, I think in more recent years, it's become become a real option for people. But it is a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. It's not just a little bit more work. You it's know, a lot. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's like, in 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 theory, it's a great idea. And then when it comes to like, marketing and promotion and, and and everything it's it seems like a whole lot to bite off yeah yeah i mean i just always had this like gnawing suspicion in in the very early years of the band when we're our eyes were just wide open we we're just trying to learn all the time uh trying to absorb what was going around us but it always seemed to me like if you had your druthers about you if you had the wherewithal to represent yourself and you knew what you were after i mean importantly right. like you know what you're after that there's no better person equipped in many situations to whether it's record or produce or promo or market or whatever for those of us that have the energy and the drive to do it you know each of us is going to speak in a unique language about our own art about our own creativity right. about our own music and we're going to do it in a way that's going to have the potential to reach our audience and our the people who want to hear what's going on in a, in a more personal way. And that's, music's a personal thing. It, don't, it, always, it always has been. And lest we forget when, I think when all of us started off in, in DIY or punk or hardcore metal, whatever, whatever it was, uh, I think there was this real emphasis on the community, uh, like the music community. I think at the time though, it was out of necessity. Like none of us had any other options. So we needed the music community to help us book tours and, record our records and release our records and all this thing but then you know if you're the sort of band who did that for decades you've got those skills now you've got a you know you as a, you as a musician have a really particular skill set of non-musical skills that you can that you can draw upon that's largely the experience of putting things out the experience of promoing things the experience of you know the lived experience of understanding the difference between having good distribution with your record on an independent level and bad distribution bad distribution you're not coming home with any money and your band can't survive because you have responsibilities at home when you have good distribution so you know so everything right. sort of, you know th throughout our history it's always just been decisions made of necessity but decisions you know in terms of independence made out of a need for integrity and a need a need to be connected to you know if we're going to be those people on stage talking to the microphones about the diy community or the music community or talking to our fans about how they brought us there well we might as well live that life and we might as well walk that walk if we're going to broadcast it to tens of thousands of people at you know greenfield festival and right. anyway, you know like it's right. uh, it's quite a journey and for all the work that that it is and i kind of hem and haw about it when we're trying to put a record out, because all I do is I'm either a label or a singer or a producer, or whatever, depending on the day. Uh, but the work is the work is worth it because at the end of the day, we can rest easily on our successes with a sense of pride that comes without hubris. And when we make a mistake, we don't have to point fingers and blame other people. We just go, okay, well, we have to learn from this. You know, right. so every, everything, both the pluses and the minuses all end up being positives in, in the long run because you know this is a like when you're a young musician you're just constantly you're constantly learning you're trying to constantly improve things and represent yourself as accurately as possible right so, so well, i love that because i've often said that you know from from doing this we're all trained to do like 20 other jobs if the band ended tomorrow anyone that's done this in an independent band could go work at a label or a management or an agency or something like we're all trained to do these sorts of things. So why not do them for ourselves? And inevitably, how many times have you been sitting in those meetings with the other side of the desk and they're telling you about your marketing numbers and your record sales and you're all this. And you're like, well, how many fucking shows have you played? How many vans have you gotten into? How many, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And this, and the simple fact is those data points are important. Sure. They're not, they're not like, I don't ignore them, but they always, always, any one of those meetings, whether it's tour record or just career related, every one of those meetings leaves out the most important and the, and the least easily articulable or definable thing, which is that unknown fan response. You know, I've noticed that in this 
sort of contemporary era where people are able to sort of specify, you know, you got Taylor doing Taylor's thing, Taylor's way. And yeah, uh, you've got all these artists who are out there, you know, sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, like subverting the, the paradigm in the way that they need to. Um, I think that we have to, we have to take into account that each artist has a uniqueness to them that needs to be fostered that need that just because you know one type of marketing works for one you know heavy metal band doesn't mean at all and in fact nine times out of ten means it, it probably won't work for us because right you know if, if ghost is out there touring and i remember i remember all these like weird little marketing campaigns that they've done that, that work like gangbusters for them but like we ain't ghost like that like, right vibrators and dildos aren't going to work for me it's just it's just like <laughs> that's just that's just a fact i'm just using that because it's a Sure. Clear, clearly that wouldn't work sure but then but then you know when you get when you when you've got you know somebody across the table from you telling you okay well last time you were in chicago you know you sold this many tickets at this venue and so moving forward this is what you're worth and da da da, da, da. and it just it, it ignores the human component which is yeah if we sold 2000 tickets at the vic in 2015 that doesn't mean that those 2000 people are still going to be around to pay right. to see us now there could be zero. There could also yeah. be 12,000 because of some viral thing or just, you know, whatever, yeah. like some trend or fad that, that happens. And, and I, I think that what, what happens is like operating in this universe, I think that like companies do their best to teach us that, well, you got to do a certain thing on TikTok and you got, you know, I'm like, fuck that. Like, because I'm, I'm not yeah, doing yeah. TikTok. Or, you know, you've got to approach your audience in, in this way on Instagram. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? My instinct tells me that that's not going to work and that if I just speak directly and more honestly and more openly, that that might be better marketing for a band like right. us than to like puff our chest out and airbrush a full head of hair on me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> me, me too. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah. Well, let me ask you this. So is it something that or have you you explored the concept of? releasing other bands is it something that or is it just your band because i know you have your own label imprint right now that's doing you guys you yourself would that be something you'd yeah. be interested so, in? so i started a label in 2014 or 15 or something so we've i've released three records i've released purple golden gray and now upcoming stone there's always the idea that that i could grow the label to include our side projects or you know bands external to the baroness world entirely but I need, <laughs> I need to prove that I have the time to do that. Right. Happens, you know, uh, I, I have somehow managed to keep myself fairly busy with, you know, with the few things that I do. Um, I think it would be great, but it's at the moment, it's not, it gotcha. wouldn't be very real because I wouldn't be able to do anything. Gotcha. Service. Well, releasing yourself is such a labor of love. You know, it's such a, you're so emotionally invested and just invested period, you know? So it does seem like it would be a wholly different thing, you know, aside from even a band that you really love and guys you really love or whatever it might be. It's not yours. It's not you, you know? Sure. So, so that yeah, makes exactly. sense. Well, let's back up. So how did you get started? This is a very vague question, but how did you actually get started playing guitar? Well, you know, I'm, I was born in 1978. Yeah. So MTV was, probably the reason <laughs> I'm yeah. sure it was, you know, you know, I would have been like 10, 10 years old in the late eighties, adolescent in the early nineties, which, you know, there was a period of time where you didn't really talk about how you're like a big nineties music fan, but I always was like, yeah, I mean, yeah. for me, like I, I, I think I, through some of the early years of MTV, I became fascinated with the idea of playing guitar, but it was, Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit that really, when that video debuted, the reality of being a musician became attainable to me. You know? Sure. And I remember it as clear as day. Like I remember seeing the video for Teen Spirit and I never heard of the band because, you know, cause I grew up pretty deep in the country. We didn't, we didn't have a music scene. We, there wasn't a venue that had shows or, or national tours that would come through ever so you know culturally there wasn't anything happening around me so it was all absorbed through the media and i saw the teen spirit video and remember having the impression that all of a sudden i was hearing music for the first time that told me through its music 
that I could write music like that. That like, you know, you didn't have to be a master craftsman to build a song in the same way that you would have to know some fairly sophisticated principles of woodworking in order to build like a, a world-class cabinet. But I was like, Teen Spirit, okay, that that is like clearly just a couple of chords. Mm-hmm. And other than that, I mean, I, I think it was the first time that I listened to music and I was like, oh, music's not about the notes. It's not about the words. It's not about the, it's about the energy. It's about, it's not about what's being played. It's about how it's being played. And I think it's easy for me to say now I was hook, line and sinker. All right. Distorted guitars, sweaty, you know, music for people who don't fit in. That's me. And, totally. you know, I was like sort of off to the races. I never, for, for the next 10 years, I would never have even considered for a heartbeat that I would become professional at it. I was very serious about like being a creative person throughout my life. And I thought it would just be art. You know, I just thought, sure. you know, I'll, I'll be a painter or whatever, and that'll, that'll be it. But, uh, you know, through the, around the turn of the millennium, around 2000, or just, just thereafter, I started playing music. I started writing more songs with a lineup of people that would become the earlier versions of Baroness and, I remember always just throughout my whole early learning phase, I just remember constantly thinking like, I'm not very good at this. I'm not very good at guitar. And I don't, have, I don't, and I don't have a very good voice, but does that matter if I like care about it as much as I do? And, and the answer always was like, no, it doesn't not being no. a good guitar player, not having a good voice doesn't mean I can't be a musician. Like I have right. reams and reams of evidence you know, on seven inch and 12 inch records that proved right. to me, you don't have to be a good singer and you don't have to be a good musician in order to write, not just good, but great music. You know, I think right. there's countless, countless examples of it. And then over the years, I realized that, that what I was saying was a little off base. You don't have to be a technical musician. You don't have to be a technical singer to be a great musician. You, you, what you have to do is you have to, to need to create like you see a space in the world that is empty you see a vacuum and your first instinct is i need to fill that with something i need to create something to fill that void and i think for me it's sometimes it's just that simple like you know like nature i abhor a vacuum i don't know what to do with empty space empty time it's either going to defeat me and make me miserable or i'm going to create or i'm going to create something and, and find myself there and that's just that's always been the impetus. It's just, yeah. it's just like a purely, purely creative spark, you know, and then you do as the artist has to go, okay, well, what, is this music? Is it lyrics? Is it uh, right. artwork? What, what am I going to do? Well, you know, I love that because you're so right about the Nirvana. For, for our generation, Nirvana were what the Ramones were. They, they sort of killed the notion that you had to be a technical wizard to be a musician because at, you know, in the seventies, it was Yes and Genesis and, and Led Zeppelin, all these bands that were made of, you know, basically studio musicians, the guys that were so proficient and the Ramones just said, you don't have to do that. You can do this. And then let's face it, it got pompous again and it got, you know, glam rock and, and shredder every, every guitar, every band had Warren Day Martini or Eddie Van Halen or George, you know, all the shredder guitar players that were technically amazing masters. And then Nirvana, once again, you know, they were the Ramones for our generation. They did it again. They were like, nope, you need a bar chord and you need some passion. Right. But I think what the I think what the 70s had a great deal of was world class technicians and craftsmen who also were, were musical. Then I think in the 80s, the, the industry had sort of moved beyond the like it didn't need you to be both at the same right. time. You know, right. You didn't need to be you don't need to be Daryl Hall anymore. You just need yeah. to be good reference. Yeah. You need to be the guy that shows up and shreds on like a skid row track or something. Right. You know? Right. It um, became only about that. It became only yeah, it became, about, it became about like the, like your singer had to be good looking. Yeah. And have a good looking first passable or great voice was sort of secondary, but it was like, I like the fact that it relied heavily on attitude. Yeah. But I didn't like the fact that I didn't like the the particulars of the attitude in, in a lot of you know that late '80s music, you know. So so glam rock to me at the time was just like the ultimate evil, and that's why Nirvana, that's why Flaming Lips, that's why Sonic Youth, that's why Dinosaur Jr. Because you know in Dinosaur Jr. you get stadium rock level guitar shredding without 
Steve Vai level cheesy sass, you know? Right, right. And I, and I do have a, I have grown up. I have learned to find value in the music that I thought was so superficial in, right. in the nineties, but I still prefer the innovators. I still prefer the left of center creative mavens who, who are more likely to make noise than to uh, fluidly run through arpeggios, you know? Right. Um, and I think, I think, I think in the 80s, well, you had, you had Eddie, I mean, he had, 90s you had dime bag like you had some guys that were like really really like alien level talented technically right. but also quite musical also quite dynamic in in the way that they were writing songs and interesting right. and you know sort of creating creating things but you didn't have very much invention so right. i so for, for me like we didn't there was no better decade for us to come up in other than the 90s because it it was for something you had you had your Fugazis, you also had your Pearl Jams, you also had Nirvana. You had bands that were like for something, you know, they stood for something that, you know, that we as kids could understand, whether it yeah. was being, you know, or Hetfield, like stood for the misunderstood kids, understanding the misunderstood, right. uh, you know, social issues, um, you know, all, all sorts of things. But those bands are also against something. And that's that's been an important aspect of music for me is, if you're for this one thing and you've got a social agenda, then, you know, this is why punk and hardcore and metal have this, you know, and hip hop, a lot, lot of like uh, a lot of musical styles that, that have a fringe have musicians that stand against the evils of music or yeah. social issues or whatever, whatever. What I'm saying is you have a message for something. It's also against something else. There's a whole, there's a whole set of like ethics and values that comes with it. And some of that stuff is, you know, a bit of a house of cards and kind of flowers and flops after a while. But like you're energizing young future musicians, like you're energizing young listeners and giving them some meat on the bone that wasn't totally just a Motley Crue, Girls, Girls, Girls. Something you said there, it's funny. Eddie Van Halen was such a, a shredder for the times, but also you're right. He was so musical and so innovative and such a great writer that the people he spawned, I feel like they sort of missed the mark. They were so... I, think, I feel like everybody missed that mark. Yeah, yeah interested in emulating him and his hammer-ons and all the things he innovated, but they didn't get the whole story, you know? Right. Um, he was the Les Paul of our times. He was a, cre a true creator and and innovated so much that, that he was, we needed that guy at that moment to sort of spearhead the rest of, you know, the next 20 or 30 years, just like, you know, last ball before him. Um, right. You know, and one thing I brought up to Gina that sifting gears a little bit that I think is so interesting about you guys is that you, you don't, I, I do not, I am a Baroness fan. I do not think of Baroness as merely a metal band. You are not a metal, just a metal band. You have metal influence. You have metal, uh, uh, ingredients yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah and ingredients no, an ingredient. and you yeah. you could play a show with metal bands but you could also play a show we could play a show successful show For together sure. or a successful tour and i think it's interesting your gear choices i think it's when we played that that festival together i watched the whole set and i thought it was so amazing you guys were using fender combo amps and for the most part single coil pickups p90 pickups Fender guitars, Telecaster strats, jazz masters. Um, is mm -hmm. that a, I asked Gina, but I want to ask you, is that a conscious choice on your part to get away from the sort of trappings of heavy, quote unquote, heavy guitar? I, I think initially that was, that was part of the impetus, but that wasn't, that was a little more on the superficial side of things. Like at the time, well, as every, everybody had, you know, like a, you guys were like LP specials, right? Like customs, we, deluxes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we're like less, uh, less, uh, I'm less, less Paul, Paul custom, custom guy. Okay. Yeah, that's that's right. You got like a black Les Paul custom. Right? I do. I well, right. I had a black. I, I did it like Michael Shanker. I had half black, half white, and then uh, the headstock started breaking on. I've got a fucking bunch of Les Paul. I mean, I've got yeah, yeah I got you know one right here, blah blah blah, but. You know, I mean, and they're a little, here's my thing with Les Pauls. I love them. They're perfect for what I do, but I also get bored with, you know, I want to, I want to use other shit too, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, so for me, it was, I, I had a Les Paul custom. I had like the Frampton one. It was like, you know, it was oh, like yeah. an 86 
uh, Olympic white with three gold pickups and all this great car. It was, yeah, it was, it's nuts. I still, I still have it. It's, it needs a tune up big time, but it didn't, it didn't work. You know, like, sure. not saying That's it, the thing. Bad. It, didn't, yeah. it didn't sound bad. I didn't move away from it because it sounded bad. I moved away from it because it didn't feel right. And I noticed that when I would play a Stratocaster, when I play a Telecaster, where many people moving from Gibson to the Fender style guitars, the first thing you notice is, oh, it's kind of tough, or it's a little more naked and exposed. I didn't see those things. Uh, I didn't see it as being more difficult or more challenging. I saw, I have come to see Les Pauls as having like a slightly, like they're, they're, a, they're a sledgehammer. Right. You can destroy a building with yeah. a Les Paul. You can yeah. absolutely level it to the ground. But fenders are scalpels. Yeah. They do precision, precision cuts. And for my money, the fender voicing, the fender setup, uh, the single coil pickups allow for a more accessible type of expression. Uh, so the, the, the real character of my playing and of many, many musicians playing, the real character is only exposed when you kind of remove some of the, the bulk around it. You know, I, I, th- I think the thing about Gibson that's so amazing is it's just beefy. Like you don't have yeah. to do anything to achieve that, that tone. Yeah. But similarly, you can't, you can't convincingly thin it out or adjust its tone very easily. Like uh, Les Paul's Les Paul's Les Paul. There's not a great deal of difference between <laughs> a knack and the bridge pickup. You know, you, you can do whatever you want to those EQ knobs, but the sound is still really, it's more like when you adjust the tone and volume on a Les Paul, you're only removing stuff, you know, so right. when you roll the tone knob back, you're rolling away the highs. Yeah. Uh, on a Fender uh, and on Strat, I'll just use a Strat with like a five-weight selector because I love those guitars so much. There are, adjusting the EQ on that, it's not as much a case in, in terms of feel as starting from 100% and then pulling back to 75, pulling back to 50 it just feels like you're adjusting the overall sound of it, you know, right. because the, output, the output's not so high. There's not so much extended low, low end, you know, and there's and the thing I really, really like about fenders is that when you strum a chord, there's enough sonic space in between each of the six notes in an open chord that you can, you can hear each note. Right. Uh, whereas my, my experience with Les Pauls was generally like an open G chord, just, sounds like a g chord it doesn't it doesn't i don't hear all the elements working at once and and those are not that's that's not like pros and cons those are just the those are my impressions and i prefer you know at the expense of fullness sometimes at the expense of that robust les paul sound i prefer to hear the musician behind it a little bit more and that's you know that's why i think that that like a strat really suited a, a player like hendrix or like Stevie Ray Vaughan or David Gilmore or Johnny Greenwood. Like there's something very personable and exposed about that sound. Not to say you can't have a fully exposed sound. I mean, like I can't imagine Slash and his character through anything other than Les Paul. But for me, I wanted to be able to make those precision cuts. I like the two and the four position on a Strat a whole lot. I like those wacky shiny low output out of phase out of you know yeah uh, like sort of sounds i like i i in a live setting i play them as much as i play any other position on no shit uh, or on, and pick up position yeah yeah I, and i play quite because i think with the fender like let's just stick with fender let's stick with gear for a second so if you've got five selectors each of those five has a very very clearly distinct sound i think two and four sound kind of similar the middle sounds a little, eh, it's good, but it doesn't have a ton of character. Bridge and right. neck sounds like, they sound wildly different to me. So I can say, you know, we have a song, I can make some decisions really whenever I want to and, you know, playing live in a song to like, if I want people to hear Gina a little bit more, I have a setting. I just have a switch that I yeah. uh, pick up selector that 
doesn't make me less audible. It makes, makes me less present so she can come right. and them and, and vice versa. Furthermore, there's just like a different quality of the character of attack. You have to play it a little bit further ahead where you would, but, but it's the expression and it's the way that they take effects pedals, which are, which are kind of, you know, kind of big to us. And then the way that they pair with combo amps that I think is superior with fenders, you know, like I, I think, think on that right. I was a uh, fender combo. And uh, recently I've always had at least one uh, Roland JC 120 on stage with me. Oh, yeah. um, so it's, it's like, you know, if, if you were to look at our backline, you're going to think like classic blues <laughs> or country right. or whatever. Even if you get down to like the floor level, like what effects are we using or what type of pickups are we using? We still use like, we use really classic, really vintage voiced pickups, equipment effects, you know, yeah. like nothing, nothing too crazy. Yeah. Um, I love that about your band though. I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's part of the DNA of your band and it's part of what makes your band stand out. If you go to, let's say, a heavy music show and it's a bunch of bands, you're going to, if you're a total novice, you're going to remember Baroness because you guys intrinsically just sound different. And it's because of those elements. I mean, your writing yeah. as well and your songs are, I think, a cut above the rest as well. But, you know, just having it in your DNA in your sort of larval level um, like yeah. that, like single cool pickups and uh, combo amps, and things like that. Would you call yourself like more of a strat guy these days, or do you have a sort of variety going on? Uh, I'm a strat guy on certain songs. Like Rickenbacker built me this custom uh, instrument while we were recording our last record, and I was using that on that tour. As well. I've been using that since uh, early 2020. Um, it has a very, as Rickenbackers do it, this yeah. this one has a very very particular sound that is neither Fender nor Gibson. Uh, which is why I like that. And, you know, there's certain things I think sound better with jazz masters. I feel like if I was going to be a one instrument person, you know, if I was going to have that one that like everybody yeah. identifies, I feel like I would have found it by now. What I'm more comfortable with and what I sort of appreciate more in, in that it, it's fun to experiment with different instruments is that I have a small, now it's a small collection of instruments that I'll yeah. I, I lose count of the guitar sometimes. Maybe, maybe you're the same yeah. as me. I have more, much more than I need and much more than I know what to do with. I don't want any of them to sound the same because I see each one as a separate tool with a separate purpose and a separate function. And where I can use a drill, in, I'm using a carpenter reference, but where I could use a traditional corded drill and uh, you know a battery-powered driver to do many of the same functions there are also uniquely individual things that each of those tools is going to give to me uh same with guitars i can play an entire baroness set on a strap right. i can play an entire baroness set on a telecaster it'd be difficult for me to do the entire set on the rick it would be difficult for me to do the entire set on a jazz master but well now i have one jazz master i can do the whole set on. and then i've got a um the prize of my collection which i can't unfortunately i can't tour with because it's too it's too old so i've got a 62 es330 oh wow uh, it's got it's got the like black p90s in it yeah and i don't think i don't think it's ever really had any major work or rehabs ever done on it it never goes out of tune it sounds incredible wow sounds like sounds like the piece of wood that it is you know so for, for me, it's just that each instrument has its own sort of tonal uh, blueprint or, or, or fingerprint. And my job as the artist is to realize that all of these paintbrushes and colors and tools that I have can be used in conjunction to create a more three-dimensional picture with greater depth. Uh, rather right. than rather than to refine the one the one instrument and really unlock its true potential, I'm like, well, just keep everything chaotic and kind of changing, and it'll it will force me into different types of unique potentials. Yeah, um, and that, and and again, I, I think you, you hit on this with the last statement that you had, but the important thing is that this isn't a one size fits all mentality for every band the fact that I choose more expressive, what would feel like more expressive exposed instruments to me with less of a plug and play, overwhelming, awesome heaviness. The fact that we really like to rely on sophisticated tones that sometimes make, create their own challenges. But that that's just what the band is, even when we're not talking about gear. We're choosing, yeah. we, try to, we try to make choices that don't, necessarily fit because we're trying to find what we are 
by breaking conventions rather than adhering to them. And I yeah. think, so I think the instrument's an extension of that mentality and that, that concept. And some, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There, you know, sure. like, look, I, I know if you go, there's like subreddits that are devoted to how much better we'd be at this point if we had just stuck with marshals and less ball fall time. But, <laughs> right. You know, I, I say, yeah, but that's not up to you, man. Like it's the journey, yeah. of, the journey of the musician, the journey of the artist is not one where you follow your audience. It's one where you are walking hand in hand with them. You don't service sure. them. They don't service you. The best relationship that this band can have with our particular audience is one where we take bold risks and we'll make weird choices and we're excited enough and impassioned enough about making those decisions that we do them with enthusiasm. It's right. again, it's all down to energy and enthusiasm. I can play my songs totally accurately, but if I don't put life into them, if I don't, you know, if I don't mean what I'm saying when I say it, then the audience knows that. Like, absolutely, people think audiences are or masses of people are, are kind of idiots sometimes. Well. That's just because, like, if I do this and if I, you know, if I do the a little bit louder now, a little bit louder now, or right, the, right. you can make people get quiet. You can make them clap. Like, that's just some weird stage dynamic power. But the, the real power comes, you know, the real, like, magic of music happens when everybody realizes that they're part of the show. And right. when, uh, when, I, when I stop realizing that, yeah, like, playing that solo, like, super fluid, like, that's not going to make the show better. What's going to make the show better is right. pour myself into it. And in order to pour yourself into, you know, your project as an artist, you, you have to take the first step. You have to, right. you have to say like, on some level, it's my energy and my enthusiasm for this weird choice that I've made. That is the only thing that's going to translate through the speakers to, to the audience. Yeah. And I would like to think that our audience, at least at this point understands that, if nothing else, we're trying to do something different every time we try to do something. So it shouldn't be surprising and it shouldn't, there, there should not be Orthodox Baroness fans who say, Oh, it's, it's one, it's one way and one way only. It's just right. one, it's just one sort of thing that they do. Now that's never, but that's never been our thing. Like we've right. always tried to prove with each release, even with each song across an album that like, Hey, it's going to change, man. Like right. music's about the human experience. The human experience isn't one fucking thing. The right. best way that Baroness has to express that human experience is through the variety of yeah, experience. and I, I think that's in, intrinsic to your band, like I said. But but you you hit something there. It's like I you're right. I think we have to give our audiences and, and the fans a lot more credit because you're right. We they know when we're phoning it in, if we're phoning it in, oh, if there's yeah. something else going on. Because we as fans of music have known when I, I can tell when a band's up there just going through the motions. I can tell when they're putting out records that they feel obligated to do you know, just to basically go out and get touring again and selling merch so they can make money and all that shit. It's really obvious. It's very obvious. Yeah. You know? And we all, we've all like, we've all slipped up once. Or, I mean, it's impossible to have a thousand percent batting average, you know, like sure. we've all, we've all written a song that in spite of its popularity, we wish we hadn't written. Right. <laughs> uh, God, I got to fucking play this again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, and, and more, maybe more importantly than that is that you and I and everybody, you know, the majority of people that we know, we play a type of music that its first priority is when it is that it's genuine, that it's real, right. you know, the, the authenticity of uh, underground music is critical. Uh, and, you know, how we define authentic is, is going to change from band to band, genre to genre, but like. Pop music doesn't need to play by those rules. Pop pop music just needs to play by like, is it catchy? Does it make you dance? Does it make you feel good? Cool. Okay. Right. But the type of music we play is like, does this group of people mean it? Like that's always that's always right. the, the thing. Like watch footage of the clash. Like they, I'm sorry, but they mean it. You know? Right. Like it's, no, it's, it's, right. A, it's a it's a genuine it's a genuine thing. When you see it's funny because Gina and I were at uh, we we go to a lot of shows uh, and we were watching this band and we were, we were like tripping on how good this band was. And I was trying to figure out what it was in real time that was, that was like pulling such a reaction out of me because the music wasn't like, I mean, I've heard wild music played right. at the highest levels. This was 
this was like a club with like 20 people in it. Like this, these right. were like the, the most cutting edge bands of all time. But the band itself was putting so much energy into the performance and so much enthusiasm that it was more impressive than yeah. But it was more impressive than you know like any professional level band that's just like hitting all the right notes, but maybe right. not sassing them out enough or you know like I don't want to like throw Dream Theater under the bus, but sometimes I sometimes I watch right. them, watch sometimes I watch them play. I'm just like guys, you're working so hard at yeah the technique <laughs> that the, that the performance the energy of the performance feels a little bit like theater it's not know? there yeah yeah as soon as as soon as you you know when you when you're in a live music setting and the theater of the whole thing becomes apparent to you you're done it's done the show, you might as well walk out of the show you yeah know? i fully agree with you i fully agree with you you know okay so i always ask everybody and i won't keep you much longer but uh what is a piece of gear that got away something you maybe got stolen or lost or hawked or something that stuck with you oh here's, here's a good one yeah yeah because that's really early before i was even uh, like a known musician at all like in 90 98 or 99 i was living in providence rhode island and i had like a punk hardcore band at the time and we rehearsed in like a buddy of mine's basement and one day we showed up at the basement all of our gear was gone oh, you know and this was this was in like a pretty i wouldn't say it was like a rough neighborhood but it wasn't like it was a sort of neighborhood where you, you certainly would lock your car front sure. door windows at night and so you know we were pretty steamed about it and i was like well you know you can hear us when we're playing so it's we're like we're definitely drawing some crosshairs on this property uh that, that my friend was renting and so whatever i was like my i had it was the first like nice guitar i ever owned it was a gibson sg that i think i got in 96 i've been playing it for a few years but as far as i was concerned it was like the best guitar ever of all totally. time and, and and the only notable thing about it was i had like a little Mega Man sticker right next to the pickup selector so that that was really the only thing of note about it anyway it was gone i sort of fudged some homeowners and you know i was young i was in college so i still covered under my parents uh homeowners insurance uh-huh. and so we sort of we sort of like adjusted what the value of the guitar was i went to the guitar center in boston and i got the white les paul that i was talking about earlier oh wow with all the, with all the gold hardware and the three pickups i mean yeah i traded in a stock 96 you know gibson sg for yeah. an 86 custom lp like yeah i i won so i was i was really satisfied with that until i realized that it was like a guitar that i had a connection to you know i was yeah and, 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 yeah because i was playing the les paul and i was like oh man this thing is super cool it's heavy it's weighty it sounds great it's gold you know it sparkles yeah. across the room but like that little plank that i used to play because i remember that you feeling like just like a little it felt like a yeah two by six or something you know it was light and and it like it was neck heavy so it always mm-hmm. kind of spun the wrong way so weird but, yeah. I, but I loved but i loved it and i had a i had a it kind of had that squishy iomi sound that like sometimes oh, yeah. sgs do uh, that little lag in the, uh, or sag in the, in the attack of the notes. And, I, and the, so, yeah, I, I like, I genuinely missed it. Yeah. And then uh, two years later, I was at a, the Met Cafe again, or Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel again in Providence, Rhode Island. Oh, Lupo's, and I was, yeah. Yeah, so I was at Agnostic Front H2O show. And... I was kind of a knucklehead at that point, but, uh, you know, H2O finished, there was some kind of, I got in some kind of little dramatic physical scuffle thing. I remember I would like, my friends were sort of like dragging me away from this fight sort of thing that I was in and agnostic front had just come on. And I, I remember being like drug, you know, by the elbows, by two of my friends and I'm looking up the stage and okay, this is, this is where this whole story becomes hearsay and my perception. And I was not, I was not like a very clear-headed individual during this period of my life at all in any way, shape, or form. But I still believe this is genuine and all my friends back me up. But they're on stage, Vinny Stigma, playing a Oxblood Red SG with a fucking Mega Man sticker next to the pickup. Really? Floor. Yeah, I mean, it was like a Mega Man, it was like a Mega Man sticker that like I cut the head out of it. So it wasn't even right. like... It was, it was something about it, yeah. I'm looking up on stage and like one of my buddies like, 
hey man like is that, is that your guitar and i was like shit yeah so like the show's over and i saw the guys that kind of hanging out behind the or in front of the club i nearly i was stopped from this because i was I, at the by the end of the night, i was completely shit-faced and uh i was going to go like Verbal, at least verbally assault Vinny Stigman, ask him uh, where he got. You know, like, that would have been bad. Just do it. No, I mean, like I knew, I knew it was gonna be bad. It was, that wasn't gonna end well. My friends were just like, dude, this you're such an idiot. You got so much better guitar because of this. Like, yeah, don't, but, don't like, worry that's about interesting. It. But, but uh, yeah, do do you think maybe he had gone into like a pawn shop or something in Providence? Maybe bought oh, it that I'm, day. I'm or? sure. I'm sure some of my knucklehead friends who knew that my band was down there. I'm sure they did it. I'm wow. sure that I'm 100% positive that Vinny Stigma had nothing to do with it. No, I'm just saying, but now I'm interested in like, where did he get it from though? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I think, you know, we were, we were all feeding our habits at that stage in our lives. And I'm sure that my friends fed their habits by selling my guitar to a pawn shop. And sure. If wow. That was but that's so, but it's like, it could have gone to anybody, but it goes to this other guy from a uh, band you went and saw like, that's I was psyched. A, that's such yeah. a good story. That's yeah, such a great story. I, yeah, like I like the next morning I was like, oh, I really, should I got my should I have like approached him about the guitar? And I was like, no, 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 no. That's, it's great. Yeah, it's, it's great. great. It's great. As a matter of fact, I, I ask every guest that question, and that's one of the better resolves I've ever heard. So <laughs> yeah. I think, well, I think it, because it got it got away and I was upset about it, but it did it, it got me somewhere else too. You yeah. know, I was like and you saw it. You know where it went. I know. It, I know. It got away, but you know where it went. Well, anyway, John, thank you so much for doing this podcast. I really appreciate it, man. You were, you know, your band and you guys were some of the first people when when this thing was pitched to me that I wanted to talk to. Um, guitar players that I've always found endlessly interesting and a band that I uh, love. Absolutely. So thanks again for doing it, man. Of course, man. Thank you. What an interesting guy. You know, as is often with this uh, this podcast, I get to meet other folks that I feel kindred spirits with, you know. Uh, but uh, man, what an interesting guy. What an interesting band, what an interesting player. Go out and buy their new record, Stone, which should be out by now when this podcast airs. And like I said, if you're not currently a Baroness fan, hopefully you will be after that. I'd like to also thank here at the end the people and the wonderful folks over at Jim Dunlop and MXR Pedals. Check out what they're doing at jimdunlop.com. I'd also like to thank my new sponsors with DistroKid. They are doing the amazing work of enabling artists such as myself and musicians to get their work on streaming platforms, as we just talked about here with John Baisley uh, with Baroness and with self-releasing. They're putting the power in our hands. They're using their powers for good and not evil. Uh, we need more of that in the world, especially in the entertainment world. So check out what DistroKid are doing. Also, I'm going to leave you with uh, an example of John's amazing guitar playing. This is going to be the song Front Toward Enemy off the gold and gray record from 2019 Baroness release. Uh, this is, man, I don't know what this is tuned to. It sounds like it's B standard, maybe C standard, B standard. A standard, maybe. Doesn't sound like it's a drop situation. Could be a drop situation, but it is detuned. It is very low, and it's such a snaky, cool riff. And if you're a guitar player, you know when you're tuned that low, unless you're using just telephone wire strings, you're gonna. It's gonna be real rubber bandy, folks. It's gonna be real bouncy. And they're able because they're such good guitar players to keep this super taut and and snaky and uh, and complicated. A lot of twists and turns in the riff. So check this out. Uh, again, it's Front Toward Enemy from the Gold and Gray Baroness record. Check out Baroness. And thank you for checking me out. Thank you for checking out Antiheroes. Thank you for continuously doing this. Hopefully, uh, you know, you're finding it interesting. I certainly am. And I will continue to do it. So thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon.